Welcome to episode 23 of Flying Podcast. Today I'm talking to Claire Hatton. Claire is a commercial and instrument rating instructor with Ravenair, based mainly at Liverpool John Lennon Airport. Way back in episode 3 we discussed flight training for the PPL, so I thought it's probably a good idea and about time to find out a little bit more about what's involved in more advanced ratings and licenses such as the IMC, multi-engine, the instrument rating and the CPL. So if you have an interest in improving your flying or want to get into commercial aviation, have a listen to what Claire has to say. Hi Claire, uh, what if you can give me a little bit of uh, background as to how you got into flying and flying instruction? It was when I was 14 and we went on holiday, just a family holiday, and we had no connection to flying at all, nobody in my family flies or has ever flown, and just something about that flight just absolutely made me think, wow, this is what I want to do. And at first I didn't even think about being a pilot, I just thought about being a stewardess. It just seemed like such an exciting world. So when we got back off the holiday, we had a look into it, um, and I think it was actually my grandma who said, well, why don't you become a pilot? And from that moment on, that was it. So we looked into what was involved and um, went down and had a chat with a couple of the flying schools at Manchester Airport, which was our nearest place. And I ended up getting a job just kind of helping out at weekends at the flying school at Manchester there. And that was when I was 14. And that's it. I've been there ever since, really. <laughs> so I ended up, I got my PPL when I was 17, having kind of got my pie, um got my flying paid for by working there in effect and then um, went on and I did become a, an air stewardess to pay for all my CPL and everything so I worked for Monarch um, just to save up the money to then go on to do the commercial license and instructor rating and did that when I was 21 and became an instructor just after I was 22 and that was with Ravenair where I work now. So you never actually wanted to be a commercial airline pilot? You've always wanted to be a flying instructor? Or is it just flying that appeals to you? Yeah, it's it's flying anything, really. I did want to fly commercially originally, but from being 14 to then being kind of 24, your life is a very different world, isn't it? And, you know, things things change and things happen. And now I've got a little boy and being an airline pilot wouldn't really fit in with that so instructing is ideal because I still get to fly but then I get to go home every night as well. Okay you, you say you're working now with Ravenair they're based mostly at Liverpool is that where you do most of your flying? Yeah most of the flying's at Liverpool they've also got a base at Barton over at Manchester and a base on the Isle of Man as well but most of the flying takes place at Liverpool that's where they've got most of the, the singles and all the twins. Okay what sort of aircraft are they? They've got Tomahawks, a uh, couple of Cherokees, and parts Navias, Senecas, and Aztecs. Got a big fleet. Those last three are the twins, aren't they? Yes. Uh, what are the advantages of, of using Liverpool over, over, say, Barton, for example? Well, the twins aren't really suitable for operating from Barton. Yeah. Um, that's the main thing, really. And at Liverpool, we've, we're kind of in charge of the apron, the general aviation apron, so... That's where our maintenance, our, our big maintenance base is, and that's where most of the aircraft are. And it's, it's, it's good Liverpool, it's ideal really, because it's, 
still very friendly towards light aircraft so we can do circuits there, we can send solo students from there but then equally it's a really good commercial environment because obviously you've got all the commercial traffic there as well so it's good for advanced training because it gives people that experience. Yep. But it's not that busy that you no. sit on the, on the ground waiting for a long That's time? That's it. It's, it's rare that you get held. Obviously occasionally you will get held like you get held anywhere but generally they're very good and they, they get us in and out with minimum delay. Okay, so someone now has, uh, has got their PPL, they've passed the PPL, what do they do next? Well, you can start off with um, an IMC, that's a good, good next step. Um, you can do the IMC on the aircraft that you've done your PPL on most of the time. Most light singles have got you know, bits and pieces of kit in that are adequate for doing the IMC rating. So it's not that big a step, it's not a completely different type of aircraft. The IMC is 15 hours of training and a written ground exam as well. When you come to apply for the IMC, you've got, you've got to have had 25 hours, of which 10 hours must be P1 since you applied for your PPL. So you can't do it immediately after you've got your PPL. But it's pretty much as soon as you've got 10 hours P1 after your PPL, then you can start the IMC. And there tend to be two main reasons why people do an IMC. Firstly, after they've got their PPL and they've taken the friends and family, they kind of become a bit aimless and they think, well, oh, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. You know, do I just go and bimble around for half an hour on a Sunday or it's kind of just a bit, you know, what do I do? So the IMC gives them something to focus on, which people like that. Having done the PPL, they like to then have something else, the next step to focus on. And also, of course, it's a good idea with the British weather as it is, it really is very useful to get you out of trouble sometimes. So they're the two kind of main reasons people go into the IMC. And the result of that is, not only do you get the rating, but it, it also improves your flying skills overall. It really makes helps. you a lot safer. Yeah, makes you a lot safer, even just VFR. Mm -hmm. It really hones your skills and makes you a, a better pilot. So it's a, good, it's a good thing to do. And it's 15 hours, so... You know, there's uh, quite a lot to it, although up to two of those can be done in a simulator, but most people, I've, I've never come across anyone who does that, most people just do the 15 hours in the aircraft. And at least 10 of that is by sole reference to instruments, so that's literally with the foggles on or with screens up and you just purely looking at the instruments. So the course itself consists of two stages, the basic stage and the applied stage. The basic stage covers full panel, which is looking at all the flight instruments in front of you, basic manoeuvres, climbing, turning, descending, and unusual attitudes, which is simulating if you've got yourself in a little bit of trouble and you've uh, just ended up either, say, nose down or nose high or in a turn, just teaching you how to get out of that. And limited panel which is simulating the loss of the gyroscopic instruments, the heading indicator and the attitude indicator. And again, just learning to do the basic manoeuvres in that situation. So the limited panel gives you experience of just um, flying the basic manoeuvres again, climbing, descending, turning and unusual attitudes when you've had failure of the gyroscopic instruments. And that's if you've had a, a vacuum failure, for example. The next stage in the IMC is the applied stage, which is where you come on to radio navigation aids, the VOR, the NDB, DME, 
and you learn how to track to and from these aids and intercept radials and fix your position using them. And then the instrument approaches, so precision approach, which is the ILS, and the non-precision, which is the NDB, DME or SRA. And really that's just consolidating what you've already done because the instrument approaches just consist of tracking away from a beacon and tracking towards a beacon and descending and turning. So that's what you've already done. It's just a, a question of putting it all together in the, the instrument approach. So it's nothing new, it's just, you know, putting it all together. And also holds. Um, holds are not actually on the syllabus, but strangely, if during your test you're asked by air traffic to do a hold, then you have to be able to do one. So it seems silly in a way that it's not in the syllabus, but we do teach people holds. So you can do a hold around either an NDB or you can do a VOR hold. Most airfields have an NDB hold. So you can learn how to do those as well. And it's very satisfying. It's quite difficult to get your head round to begin with, but it's, you know, once you've learned how to do it, it is very satisfying. And the last little bit is just bad weather circuits, because after you've done an instrument approach into an airfield, it doesn't always deliver you in exactly the position where you want to be. You might end up in a, a bit of an awkward position. So then you need to be able to position yourself visually under the very low cloud that you've just popped out underneath and so you need to be able to just manoeuvre and land off that visually and that's it, that's the whole syllabus It's a UK only rating isn't it? So It is, it's not a JAR rating yet so it's only recognised in the UK And its future is by no means secure is it? No, with EASA coming, coming up um, everyone wasn't sure what was going to happen really with the IMC it seems like they've, it's safe for another, another few years at Is least, it? and then we'll, we'll have to see what happens. It does that. make sense, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, you know, we do have particularly bad weather, don't we, over here, yep. compared to some European countries. So it for us, on our, our island, you know, we, we need it, really. OK, now, Ravenair do offer a night rating, but that's not something you personally teach, is it? No, that's not. I don't. OK, let's uh, move on then to uh, the multi-engine pilot's licence. Why would you want to do a, a twin rating? Most people learn to fly on single-engine piston. You could theoretically learn on a, on a twin, but nobody does that it's because it would be expensive. too expensive. So they learn on a, a single-engine piston, and then you can learn to fly multi-engine piston. So you then have both the SEP rating and the MEP rating on your PPL. Um, it's often referred to just as a twin rating because the, the aircraft are a twin-engine light aircraft. So the PPL, a PPL holder can start an MEP rating um, at any time, really, but by the time they come to apply for it, they need to have 70 hours P1. And so it's advised that you've got 70 hours P1 before you actually start. You also need a current medical. So if you're flying on a PPL, chances are it will be a Class 2 medical, and that's fine to start with. So the MEP rating consists of six hours of flying and seven hours, seven hours of ground school and a written exam and a flight test. And the six hours of flying is broken down into two and a half hours under normal conditions, i.e. you've got both engines operating, and three and a half hours of engine failure procedures and asymmetric flight. And the first thing really with the twin rating, if people have learned just on a 
what I'd call, you know, a normal light aircraft, not a complex type, so a Tomahawk or a Cessna 152 or something like that. They're not overly powerful, are they? Let's face it. So the first thing really is getting used to having so much power and how to cope with that. These twins just want to climb and climb and climb. And so you've got to be very strict in making them level off. And also they go very fast, you know, compared to your average tomahawk. So it's just getting used to that, all that new power that you've not been used to. So once you've got used to the, the extra power, it's just a case of getting used to the new characteristics. Like if you convert onto any new type, if you're going from a, a two-seater to a four-seater, you've got to get used to the new, you know, the new characteristics of how it handles. So really, that's, that's what it's about. And predominantly, I presume, it's the asymmetric flight, which is the, the big deal. That's it. I mean, once you've, once you've got used to that, that first stage of how to handle all this new power and everything that you've not been used to, you then move on to all the asymmetric flying, and that's when it, it, the, you know, the real differences kick in then, because it's, it's like nothing you've ever done before. Having said that, it's immense fun. It really is brilliant. You know, flying twins is such a lot of fun. Why is, why is that? It's just great. <laughs> it really is. Um, there are a lot of physical forces to, to contend with. You know, when you do the asymmetric, you've got a lot of, of physical force in there because um, with putting your foot on the rudder to, to counteract the yaw, and it's, it's great. It's a real challenge. It's a challenge to physically fly it, and it's also a challenge for your brain, you know, remembering all the drills and all that side of it. So it is, it's great fun, and everybody, everyone who's, who I know who's ever done it has thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So it does focus quite a lot on engine failure after takeoff. That's kind of the worst-case scenario, because that's when you've got relatively low airspeed and high power. So that's the worst moment for an engine failure to occur. And after that, it, it looks at um, asymmetric circuits, um, an asymmetric go-arounds, asymmetric landings, and you also do an actual engine shutdown as well at kind of 3,000 feet or so, where you actually do, you don't just do touch drills for that, you actually do shut it down, and that's quite surreal as well. The mm. first time you do that, yeah. flying around with the prop just stopped yeah. <laughs> out of the window is quite strange. But then, of course, you start it up again, and off you go again. You hope. So alongside the actual flying, there are seven hours of ground school that you have to do, because, obviously, there is a lot to it that you've got to get your, get your head round. The pre-flight, well, in addition to the pre-flight briefings, the pre-flight briefings will cover everything you're going to do in the lessons, but the actual ground school covers aircraft systems, variable pitch propellers and feathering, principles of multi-engine flight, minimum control and safety speeds, mass and balance, effect of engine failure on systems and performance, and weight and performance. So you've got seven hours worth of, of ground school there, which is good because the written exam, as with all the other exams, the pass mark 75%, so you know you do need to know it, do need to know the stuff before you do the exam. And it's it's multi-choice as well, just the same as the actual PPL exams. The only difference is, depending on the school that you're training with, a 
proportion of the written paper is actually type specific so whereas for the PPL it's just generic single engine aircraft because you do need to know such a lot of the information for the aircraft type at Ravenair we use a Seneca 2, well we've got two Seneca 2's that we use for the twin ratings and you've got to know the the key speeds mm -hmm. you know and things for that aircraft for safety so a big proportion of the written paper is type specific so whichever school you go to you will be learning you'll be tested on the speeds for your aircraft right. which is which is very good let's say you you get your twin rating on a, a Seneca 2 then what happens if you move on to another twin aircraft well the multi-engine piston rating covers multi-engine piston aircraft so that's fine you could you could go and um, fly a different type you would just need a checkout like if you flew a Cherokee and you wanted to go and fly 172 you just need a checkout that's all so it does cover the whole the whole class of aircraft the only difference is you do get I mean some twins will have retractable gear others don't like the Parton Avias don't have retractable undercarriage some will be turbocharged and some aren't like the Aztecs we've got aren't turbocharged but the Senecas are so there's just all these differences for you to get used to but the actual rating once you've got the rating you can then just go in and be checked out wherever you want to fly okay so we've, we've done our multi-engine what do we do next in the, in the line of things to do well the next step would be the CPL and some people want to do a CPL because they want to go and fly for the airlines other people want to do it just because literally as we've said they've done they've done an IMC they've done a twin rating and they just think oh, I'd like to get a CPL it's just you know a, another challenge isn't it of course you need the CPL to fly for any sort of remuneration don't you so even if you wanted to do you know, aerial photography crop dusting you need the CPL before you get paid anything there are certain things you can do that comes under aerial work, but the majority of jobs you do need a CPL. Right. Yep. So to start a CPL course, you need to hold a PPL with an RT licence, because some people may have a PPL without an RT licence. You don't have to have one, but you do need one for the CPL. You, need, you also need a Class 1 medical, which you'll have to go down to Gatwick to get that. The initial, the initial issue of that is from Gatwick. You need to have completed 150 hours flight time as pilot to start a CPL and then by the time you're applying for the licence you've got to have 200 hours flight time of which 100 must be pilot in command so there's actually no P1 time within the CPL course so it's a good idea to have 100 hours or near enough 100 hours P1 before you actually start you also need to have passed either the ATPL or the CPL written exams before you can start and for, uh, to apply for a CPL, you must be at least 18 years old. The difference between CPL and ATPL exams is not a great deal, is it? I think there's probably, is it, is it nine exams versus 14 or something like that? The main difference is if you're wanting to um, go onto the airlines, which is what most people doing, doing this yeah. actually do want to do, it's, you've really got to do the ATPLs. Yeah. Okay. So not many people do the, the CPL written as such um, but they are there if you would prefer to do those so the training can be carried out on a single engine or a multi-engine aircraft although part of the course must be on a complex type we use the Seneca we use a single engine for the first part of the course and the Seneca for the last part of the course 
because if you're wanting to go on, if you're getting the CPL because you want to go on to fly for the airlines, it needs to be a multi-engine CPL that you come out with. There are places where you can do single-engine CPLs, but you need to have a single-engine complex aircraft to do it in, like an Arrow or something like that, because part of the course, whether it's a twin or a single, has to be on a complex type. But at Ravenair, we do the first part just in a, a single and the latter part in the Seneca. Now, the number of hours that you do depends whether you actually already hold the multi-engine rating. If you already hold multi-engine rating, the first 20 hours of the course are on a single and then the last five hours are on the, the twin. If you don't hold multi-engine rating, because you can go into the CPL just with a, a PPL and not holding a multi-engine rating, in that case you do the first 20 hours on the single and then eight hours on the twin. So in effect, you're only doing three extra hours but you're also coming out with a multi-engine rating. Now to some people they think, fantastic, I'm getting a twin rating for only three hours, whereas mm -hmm. if I went and did one separately I'd have to do six hours, which is true. That is that is exactly the situation. It's just um, there are pros and cons to each way of doing it really. Obviously the CPL you know, is quite demanding and you've got to be able to fly to a high standard. So if you've already learned how to fly a twin, you're going to be ahead of the game when it comes to the when it comes to the twin section but you know if you can manage to get the hang of it and do the studying to, to help you along then theoretically you can come out with with the CPL and the multi-engine piston in in 28 hours but of course these are just minimum number of hours aren't they you can take longer yeah that's it they are the minimum hours just like the PPL minimum is 45 now the, the difference with the PPL is most people do go over the 45 hours, I think it's fair to say, yep. especially in this country with the weather and everything. By the time you come to do a CPL, you can already fly. That's the difference. The PPL, you know, that's the absolute beginning where people might struggle with landings, usually landings or PFLs or something like that. So they might find a point where they do struggle and, and take a few extra hours. By the time it comes to the CPL, you can theoretically already do all that so it's it's just a case of improving the skills you've already got so it's a lot easier to do the CPL in the minimum hours than it would be to do the PPL in the minimum hours. Right. What is the difference, you th can you sort of sum up, what's the difference between the, the sort of flying that you have to do for the CPL and the PPL? What's the difference in, uh, in accuracy? Well the actual syllabus for the CPL is covers the same things really as the PPL does. There's a couple of extra bits and pieces but you know it's a navigation section. You'll do a little bit of instrument work, a bit of general handling so stalling, steep turns, that kind of thing and circuits, emergencies. So it's everything really that you've already covered on the PPL. It's just that you have to have more of a commercial frame of mind because when, you, when it comes to the test you are acting as if you are a commercial pilot carrying out a commercial flight in the most expeditious mm -hmm. and commercial manner that you can whereas you know the PPL is nothing to do with that the PPL is just can you do things safely yeah. and to a good enough standard so it is it is more demanding in terms of you've got smaller tolerances on height keeping and heading keeping throughout the actual test 
but you've also got to have a more commercial frame of mind. What does the actual uh, CPL flight test involve? The CPL flight test has to be carried out by a CAA staff examiner rather than just your flying school's flight examiner. So that's the, the main difference, and it has to be booked through, through the CAA, for which they will charge you a fee. But the flight itself is usually a couple of hours in length. Beforehand, you get time to plan it, as you do with the, the PPL skill test. They'll give you a route, you'll plan it, you'll be expected to do all the weight and balance and performance calculations and all that side of things. And then you'll have a briefing and the, the examiner will go through absolutely everything that the flight's going to consist of. They'll explain which parts they're responsible for, which parts you're responsible for. And so you're left in no doubt as to what's going to happen and that's your opportunity to ask questions if you are in some doubt. They'll also ask you for all the speeds that you're going to fly. You'll obviously have learnt all the speeds for the climb, cruise, approach, you know, all these different things. And he will then, as you are telling him, they'll, he'll write down the speeds that you say, because they'll then be checking that you actually fly the speeds that you've said you're going to fly. So the flight itself, the examiner will just sit there and let you get on with it and the examiner will just expect you to carry it out as if you are the captain of the, air, captain of the flight. There'll be a few emergencies throughout the, t the test at various points just to make sure you've learned the, the drills for those. And that's it really. When you say you need to sort of carry it out with a sort of commercial mind, what, what do you mean exactly? It's things like if, if um, air traffic have asked you to go a particular way which is taking you away from the route you actually intended to go you know sometimes there'll be reasons why you can't go that way but you'd be expected to kind of question that and say uh, actually no we'd prefer to go that way if possible it's just things like that and you know trying to keep everything as expeditious as possible rather than on a, a PPL skill test that's not the issue at all. You're not interested in that. It doesn't matter. You can take as long as you want. Whereas with a commercial flight, you just want to, to get there as efficiently and expeditiously as possible. Okay, so we, we now have our CPL. If you need to fly for the airlines and fly in the, under IFR conditions, you need, obviously, an instrument rating. That's it. The instrument rating is a, a necessity for anyone wishing to go to the airlines. But it's also very useful... For PPL holders, quite a lot of PPL holders have an IR. It, it then enables them to, you know, go off, go in the airways, go in Class A airspace. So a lot more flexibility rather than just being um, restricted to nice days. So it allows you to fly in instrument conditions um, in Class A airspace and carry out approaches down to very low minima, in some cases as low as 200 feet. Whereas the IMC rating, the minima are kind of 500 or 600 feet um, for the, the different types of approaches. And it is regarded as one of the most demanding ratings, the IR. It's kind of the big one that everybody kind of dreads, kind of looks forward to. It's a challenge, but yes, it's very demanding. So it can be added onto a PPL or a CPL. If you're doing it on a PPL, you need to pass the seven... CAA exams which are specifically for the IR 
down at Gatwick, you need to hold a night qualification, hold an RT licence, and have at least 50 hours cross-country flight time as pilot in command. And the training course is 55 hours, which is divided between, can be divided between a simulator and an aircraft. The difference if you're doing it on a CPL, you've already passed the written exams, so you don't need to pass any more exams. Yeah. You still need the 50 hours cross-country flight time as pilot in command, which you'll have anyway by then. And the training course is just reduced to 50 hours, so rather than 55 on a PPL, it's 50 hours on a CPL. And again, it can be divided between a simulator and an, an aircraft. So the course itself consists of basic instrument flying and general handling on instruments, such as stalling and unusual attitudes, basic tracking of radio nav aids, and then it moves on to instrument departures, and um, which are called SIDs. I've come across the phrase SIDs, which is standard instrument departure. Airways flying, and holding procedures, instrument approaches down to the minima, and missed approach procedures. And again, the, the IR can be carried out in a single or a twin engine aircraft. What is it particularly about the instrument rating that people find so difficult? The thing with the instrument rating, it's very demanding in terms of cockpit management and organisation. Being able to fly on instruments, yes, you need to be able to do that, and you need to be able to do it to a good standard. But only being able to do that is only half the battle. You've really got to be able to organise yourself, organise your brain and the cockpit and know exactly what's coming next. There's a lot to do um, as you take off on a standard instrument departure. You'll be following the, the plate for the standard instrument departure. You'll be climbing out, there'll be lots of turns, having to intercept radials and climb to a certain height. And air traffic will be passing you on to the next air traffic unit and then they'll be giving you more instructions. In the airway, things settle down a bit because that's just straight and level basically, but then you need to be setting everything up for the approach into the next place. And then once you're doing an instrument approach, again, that's got to be um, absolutely spot on in terms of the instrument flying, but you've got to be doing all the um, descent checks and approach checks. And then on the actual test, if you're doing it in a multi-engine aircraft, you're going to have um, asymmetric aspects as well. So in addition to having to fly very, very accurately, you're then having to fly very accurately and deal with engine failures and the drills for that as well. And then the general handling section is um, kind of familiar territory, really, because having, having already done it on a PPL or on a CPL, you'll be used to carrying out those manoeuvres, but... This time it's all on instruments, so you've got to be really, really hot on the, the scan and keep everything, you know, keep the scan going really well. And then the approach into the, the final place, or the place where you took off from, in case of the test, is likely to be on one engine. So there again, you've got, you've got to just keep your uh, concentration and make sure that you're flying very, very accurately in the not ideal situation of only being on one engine. So all in all, it's just a a question of thinking one or even two steps ahead all the time really and the training enables you to fly to the required standard of accuracy but it's also training you to be thinking ahead and setting things up ready so when they give you a change of frequency 
the frequency is already set in there and when you're supposed to be intercepting a radial to a, a new VOR or something you've already got it set in there and it's just things like that so that you're always ahead the minute that you start getting behind is when it'll all just fall apart yep. so you've really got to be ahead and as it should be really you know I mean that is once you've got the commercial license the instrument rating is then kind of the last qualification and you can then go and get a job flying 200 people around in a 757 so you know it's got to be to that standard how many people fail this oh people do fail yes um it's one of those things where something so silly can happen and you can just lose your concentration for a moment and you can have perhaps you know you're supposed to level off at 4,000 feet and you you realize you've gone through 4,000 up to 4,100 something like that it's it's you know it's such fine details that you've got to be able to to fly to that if you lose your concentration or get distracted by something then these things can happen but hopefully you know the training gives you the experience that you can keep on top of everything and hopefully it all comes together on the day is it worth putting yourself through the extra torment of doing it in a twin mine says you're not well just do it in a single and Quite often if people are doing it on a PPL, they will do it on a single because, I mean, the, the most obvious example is someone who owns their own aircraft and wants to fly themselves around on business, say, around this country or into Europe. And if they go and get an IR on a, a single, then they can go off in there, whatever they've got. Most, most times, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll be able to go, whereas without the instrument rating, they can't. But most, you know, it's a lot of time and effort and money for people to do the IR and so most of the time it's because people want to go to the airlines that they're actually doing it there aren't there aren't that many people who have an IR and a PPL but yes you could do that um, that is always an option and if you then if you then got the the IR just on the single there is a way to then convert that onto the twin so that would also be an option as well so once you've done the instrument rating, you then have all the qualifications you need for your frozen ATPL? That's it. You've got it then. That's the point where you can then legitimately start applying for jobs. Right. I guess if you're going to be flying with uh, other crew members, you would need to go on and do the uh, multi-crew cooperation course, but uh, that Ravenair don't do at the moment? That's right. No, we don't do that. Uh, but that is something that airlines require. And that's all done in a simulator. And it's also not a pass or fail. So people tend to quite enjoy it because after all the hard work of the IR, it's quite a pleasant thing to go and do. Okay. Uh, and just for the sake of uh, completeness, Ravenair do do flying instructor courses? That's right. Very popular, yes. Lots of people like to become instructors. Again, you can become an instructor without a CPL. You can actually do it on a PPL, although you can't get paid for it. But quite a lot of people like to do that because it means you can... You can at least go flying without having to pay for it yourself, even though you can't get paid for it. So that's quite popular. And other people who've got, say, a CPLIR, choose to do an instructor course so they can get some experience and some hours before applying to the airlines. Is the uh, rule about having the CPL to be a flying instructor likely to change under EASA rules, do you know? There is talk of some kind of... I don't know if it's a new license or just a new rule that you will be able to fly as an instructor without a CPL and, and actually get paid for it. Yeah. But I'm not really sure 
what's going to come of that or when it when it might actually happen. No, you can with microlites. It, it seems strange that you can't with uh, PPLA. Helicopters as well. Is that right? I think so, yeah. So, uh, how about Claire? You, I believe you've written a book. I have, yes, yes. Well, I've always enjoyed writing articles for magazines. I've had quite a lot of articles published in aviation magazines over the years. And then I just decided I might as well just write a book. <laughs> so, I, so I did. <laughs> so it's, it's about how to be a better flying instructor. Whereas all the books which existed up to that point, went through all the, the syllabus and the theoretical knowledge and the actual pre-flight briefs and lessons, my book tells you what it's actually like doing the job and the things you have to watch out for and how to prepare and how to be organised to get as much out of your students as possible. It's called You Have Control, Being a Better Flying Instructor. I'll put a link to it in the website. <laughs> and. I presume you know, most, most of your week is taken up flying, but actually it's not all week, is it? it's two days a week, isn't it, as you have a little child? But uh, uh, do you ever go off flying for, for fun? Strangely enough, no, we don't. <laughs> 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 no, it's a, stri it's a funny thing, that, but no, we don't, we don't go anywhere near aeroplanes, really. You must have had holidays where you thought, oh, I'll go and fly somewhere. Yes, um, I've done... We, we did have... Uh, a weekend away in Scotland going flying the seaplane up in Scotland and that was absolutely fantastic uh, a little piper cub that lives on Loch Urn or it did do a few years ago and it was fantastic so that I would thoroughly recommend that it's all the best bits of flying with none of the bits you don't want so absolutely immense fun we could fly off the ship canal couldn't we? yeah that's right <laughs> How glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. I love flying the, the light twins. Absolutely great fun. Gives me a big grin every time I go. So I'll, I'll stick with that for now. And who knows what the future may bring. Okay, and lastly, why should people pick Ravenair for their advanced flight, or any flight training for that matter? Ravenair has got a good balance. It's got a huge fleet of single-engine aircraft, and it's also got a huge fleet of twin-engine aircraft. So um, we've always got lots of instructors, lots of aeroplanes. We've also got, obviously, Liverpool as our operating, our main operating base, and Liverpool just provides the perfect basis for either basic flight training, but more particularly advanced flight training, because it's got a really good balance between being friendly towards little aeroplanes, letting you do circuits and things like that, but it's also got a lot of commercial traffic, so it's it's the ideal environment for learning yeah. to become a commercial pilot. Not having flown through Liverpool's airspace, the uh, ATC guys are very friendly and... They are very friendly, and they, they always say to us, you know, if it's a rainy day, let the students come over, bring them over so they can see things from our perspective, which is very good. You know, they are very, very encouraging and they like to have a good, good relationship with us. Cool. Okay, well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you. Thanks again to Claire. As I said, I'll stick a link to her book, which is called You Have Control, onto my website. If any of you are interested in becoming a flying instructor, it sounds like essential reading. The web address is, of course, www.flyingpodcast.co.uk.
And don't forget you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Flying Podcast. Again, all one word. The same, uh, the same applies to Facebook. Search for Flying Podcast, all one word. Or click on the link on the website. We do strive for accuracy on this podcast, but as you're no doubt aware, legislation changes from time to time in the world of aviation, and what we say is only meant to be general guidance and advice. So, if you'd like to find the latest rules and regulations regarding flight training, please have a look at the flight crew licensing pages on the CAA website. Well, that's it for episode 23. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or indeed if you'd like to take part, You can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you again soon.